You may be seated. If you would, turn in your Bibles to uh, 1 John chapter 4, and you might put a finger in 1 Corinthians 13, or you can simply turn into the insert that's in your bulletin. Both the passages we'll be looking at today or focusing in on today are there printed for you along with a short outline. We're looking at gospel foundations for marriage in this series, and the first sermon in the series I dealt with the beginning of it all, the beginning chapters of Genesis in which we saw the first foundation stone of gospel marriage, and that is the design from God, God's design for marriage. And the foundational principle that's stated by Moses is then repeated by Jesus, repeated by Paul. We see it that it is God and His design that a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. We noted in creation that God made Adam, and then He took a rib out of Adam, and He formed Eve. When He brought her to the man, she said, He said, bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. And this was the foundation for the simple math that God said, that the man shall leave his father and mother and be one flesh with his wife. That's what God designs. And the definition for marriage uh, that we noted from Jim Neuheiser flows out of the Bible's description. He says, marriage is a lifelong covenant of companionship between a man and a woman that has been established under God before the community. So marriage as we understand in Scripture is not just reserved to Christians. It's, it's not a sacrament that only belongs in the church, but that marriage is an ordinance from creation that even unbelievers can enter into. But the difference between an unbeliever's marriage and a believer's marriage is radically different. It's hugely different because it's based on the difference that we have in our understanding of what real love is. My contention is that unbelievers can't understand the genuine nature of real love for one another because they haven't understood what it means to be really loved by their Creator and Maker through the Redeemer, Jesus Christ. But for Christians, marrying in the Lord as we're called to do, that is a game-changer for the way that our marriages should look. The way that Christian marriage looks is fundamentally, fundamentally different because of our transformed, redeemed, renewed look at what love truly is. The world perverts and twists what love is, and it changes what our view is. If we're not careful, we're going to revert to what the culture around us says that love is all about. We need to go back to the Word to get this foundational principle right of what is real love. Would you follow along as I read 1 John 4 and 1 Corinthians 13? This is the Word of God. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent His only Son into the world so that we might live through Him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that He loved us 
and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us, and His love is perfected in us. 1 Corinthians 13. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understanding all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but I have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It's not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices in the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you that your word declares to us what real love is, that it records for us the manifestation of your love in sending your only Son for us. Lord, we thank you that you didn't leave us to our own to figure out marriage, that you have given us your manual to follow your design, to build our marriages on a firm foundation, on your word. Lord, the principles that we learn are not always very complicated, but we still need your wisdom in understanding spiritual things. We need the Spirit of God to help us discern the truth. We need your Spirit to help us to apply the truth, which can be the more difficult. Lord, I pray that whether we're married, whether we're divorced or widowed, whether we are looking forward to being married or frustrated that we're not yet married or we've been married for years and years. Lord, I pray that wherever we're at, would you speak to us from your word and equip us to love better, to love with you as the source. I pray that this would be true in our church, in our relationships with one another. In Jesus' name, amen. you've been to a wedding recently and you gaze at the couple that's uh, getting married and you might ask yourself, is this going to work? What makes a marriage work? What makes this couple withstand and beat the odds? And not just beat the odds and stay together, but what makes their marriage an excellent marriage, a wonderful marriage, a marriage that they enjoy and that the people around them are blessed by? How do you know if it's really going to work or not? Is it the condition of their bank bank accounts? Maybe if they've saved up along the way and they're stable enough financially and in their careers, when the storms of financial burdens and pressures come upon them, they'll be able to get through. Or maybe it's that they are from families that have solid Christian nurturing and upbringing. They've been taught the Word. They've, been, uh, they've seen the example in their parents of what it is to have a godly Christian marriage. They know what real love looks like. So I think that they'll be okay. 
Maybe it's that they had taken all the personality tests you can imagine, and they've lined up just perfectly on every one of these tests. They are so compatible, so like-minded, or their, their goals for the future are right in step with one another. They, they each want some of the same things and are willing to work together and sacrifice to get those same goals accomplished. Maybe they share similar interests or hobbies. Or at least appreciate the other person enjoying their own hobby, let's say like bow hunting, and that's okay with them. And maybe the other person's hobby like scrapbooking, that's okay with them. They don't have to do it together, but they can appreciate one another's particular interests. My wife's not here, so she can't correct any of that. So how do you know? How do you know this marriage is going to work out? I once heard someone who described looking at his beautiful bride down the aisle on their wedding day. And as he saw her beaming face at the end of the aisle, he just smiled inside. He was so excited. He was so confident. He knows this is going to work. I know we're so similar in so many things. As I look at her, I know that she really loves me. And I really love me. This is a match made in heaven. Now we laugh, and nobody would ever say that out loud, and we probably wouldn't even admit that we thought that in our heads. But as a default, I think that we're sinners. One of the key marks of our sinfulness is selfishness. I think of me, myself, and I before my wife ever fits into the equation. And so we need to be careful to understand that roadblock in and of itself, that selfishness works against the real love that God demonstrates for us because it is a selfless love that God calls us to because it is the selfless love of God through Christ Jesus that is the source for our marriage love. It's really the source for all of our relational um, ability with one another. So if you're not married, you can, you can understand the application of this sermon to all sorts of relationships that you find yourself in. But as a gospel foundation for our marriages, we can weather the storms of life, and the key is real love. It's real love as de- defined by God in His Word not by what the world says. So let's look at the source of love in 1 John 4. Uh, those verses really spell out for us what that love is. And in my notes, between 1 John 4 and 1 Corinthians 13, I have 22 highlights of the word love, loved, or beloved. There's a lot of love in these two passages. Let's look first at the source of love. Where does this love come from? Well, verse 8 tells us, God is love. Foundationally, as part of his character, he, who he is ontologically, God is love. And when we start with that as the beginning point, as the fountainhead, as the source, we have a good grasp on where this love is going to be found in our lives. This, where does the love come from? This love comes from God. Look at verse 7. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves, so who is called to love? 
the one who has been born of God and knows God. That's speaking of Christians. Remember, he started off, beloved, those who have been loved by God, you are called to love as you have been loved by God. You have been born of God. This is the regeneration that takes place when we are dead in our trespasses and sin. When we were God's enemies, when we were still sinners shaking our fist at God, he died for us. That's the kind of love that he shows us in borning us again. But he also is, knows us. For those who know God, this love of intimate knowledge and understanding of God, it's not just a knowledge of assent and intellect. It is a knowledge of deep personal connection, of intimacy that we can have with our Heavenly Father because of Christ and His work. So when do we see this love? Verse 9, in this, the love of God was made manifest in us that God sent His only Son into the world that we might live through Him. God showed it. God just didn't write letters to us declaring His love to us. God showed it. Manifest is the word that John used. He let us see it, see Him with our own eyes, the love that He showed in sending Jesus. I mean, what love is it for the second person of the Trinity to leave his place of honor and glory being worshipped day and night by angel after angel and saying, no, I think I'm going to go and take on flesh and I'm going to be born in a stable and I'm going to suffer all of the torments that these people deserve because they're sinners even though I'm not. That's how God demonstrates his love. How did he show that love? The next verse says, uh, at the end of verse 10, and this is the love that we have loved. It's not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Note this. It's not how much you love God. It's how much he has loved you. That's what we respond out of. We love him because he first loved us. And the way that he loved us is by sending his son as a propitiation for our sins. Uh, James Montgomery Boyce said, if God had merely sent Jesus to teach us about himself, that would have been wonderful enough. It would have been far more than we deserved. If God had sent Jesus simply to be our example, that would have been good too and would have had some value. But the wonderful thing is that God did not stop with these, but rather he sent his son not merely to teach us or be our example, but to die the death of a felon that he might save us from sin. That's what Jesus came to do. And in dying the death that we deserve, he demonstrated what real love is. The only way for us to understand real love in our relationships with one another is to understand the source of that love and how the source of love demonstrated through the sacrifice of Christ helps us and fuels us for our relationships. And what happens when we show God's love to those around us? Verse 12, no one's ever seen God. He, he's invisible. He doesn't have a body like we have. And so how are people going to see God? How are people going to see God's love? 
if we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. A watching world, people we come into contact with can see God and see God's love in us as we manifest it to them, as we show our love to them. John, in the, ver- in the chapter right before this one, 1 John 3 says, Behold what manner of love the Father has given unto us that we could be called sons of God. That's an honor that he bestows on us. We're called beloved. We don't deserve to be a part of his family. We haven't earned a place in his family. If anything, we deserve to be kicked out of the family and never let back. But because of Christ and his sacrifice, we're called sons and daughters of God. Because that's true for us, we have a different standard by which we are to live by. Nathan, I thought this was a marriage sermon. What does this have to do with love in marriage? I'm firmly convinced that if we have this kind of genuine love, real love, in any of our relationships, we must first come to terms with the love of God for us in Christ. If we don't come to terms with that, everything that we try and do with one another is only going to be transactional. It's only going to be worldly because what the world can do is only do good to those who do good to them, but they're ready to return bad to those who do bad to them. From His love comes our love. And this is the foundation. I don't want you to start to try and kindle your love for God as a way to build your relationships with one another. We've got to go further to the source. Consider first His love for you. And that will spur in you a desire to love Him in return and love others as well. So as you consider the source of love being in God through Christ Jesus, consider these questions that I came across this week. Am I completely satisfied in Christ? Am I content in Christ alone? Do I trust that He's the only one I need and that He'll always provide what I need in the moment that I need it? Do I trust that He Himself is better than the best marriage and all the blessings and pleasures that go along with it? If you're not married yet, those are some excellent questions to ask. Because if you haven't answered yes to those, that Christ is all you need in everything, then you're going to be looking for in another human being to give you something that they were never intended to give. And you're going to look to them for things they, they can never satisfy in you. Because until you understand the love that God has for you in Christ and the need that He truly meets, you're not ready to engage another human being in real love. If you're already married, start to rethink what your need from your spouse is and what your need from the Lord God is. All right, let's consider the supremacy of God's love. We've looked at the source of love. Now the supremacy flows from 1 Corinthians 13. The first three verses there, uh, we have to set the context again for 1 Corinthians. In the book of Corinthians, the Corinthian church, as Pastor Tony preached through that, we learned a lot about them. We learned that they were fragmented, divided. They were lining up behind different leaders in the church. I'm of Paul, I'm of Paulus, I'm of Jesus. And they all were going their separate ways. They were selfish. 
They were not full of love. Uh, they were practicing this hero worship of one over the other. They were all into the spiritual gifts that were so flashy and apparent. They wanted those sign gifts, those miraculous gifts that would ooh and awe everybody, but they had forgotten about love. They had forgotten about love to the extent of putting other people first so that in their worship services, there was chaos. And in fact, the Lord's Supper was being mishandled so poorly that some were being punished with sickness and death because they were doing so in such a selfish manner. And so, hear what Paul says then to the Corinthians, if I speak in the tongues of men and angels and have not love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but I have not love, I'm nothing. If I give away all that I have, if I deliver up my body to be burned, but I have not love, I gain nothing. You see, Paul is grounding them again in what Jesus had taught all along and what the Old Testament had pointed to all along. Listen to what Jesus says in Matthew 22. Teacher, what's the greatest commandment in the law? And he said to him, you should love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and all your mind, and all your strength. This is the great and first commandment, and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Everything in the Old Testament, the law and the prophets, all pointed to the need for us to love God first, to love our neighbor as ourself, the second greatest command. Okay, real love that God describes is to love God first and to love our neighbor second. But Jesus also taught in Luke 6, if you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. If you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. If you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. But love your enemies. What? (laughs) Jesus has turned everything upside down here. The world functions on the system when it's functioning its best, and it doesn't even function to this level half the time, if you scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. You do me a favor, I'll do you a favor. But if you hurt me, I'm going to hurt you back. It's all transactional, retaliation on one side, helping out a friend on the other side, but it doesn't account for, what do I do for an enemy? What if somebody does bad to me? What if somebody doesn't give to me? What if somebody curses me? How am I to treat them? The words of Jesus, love your enemies. He says, love your enemies and do good. Lend expecting nothing in return and your reward will be great and you will be sons of the Most High for He is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful even as your Father is merciful. You see, if the source of your love is the love that he showed you in Christ, then what's supreme, overruling how somebody else treats you, is the way that he's treated you. And you can love even somebody who reviles you, who misuses you, and mistreats you. You can love your enemies. All right, 
Real love is love of God first, love of neighbor. Real love includes enemies. That's fundamentally different than the world works. Jesus, what else do you have to say? In Luke 19, he says, For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which is lost. Matthew 9, he says, When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. So Jesus is teaching that real love includes a love for the lost, compassion for those who don't know Christ. If they haven't been loved by God in the way that you have been, if they don't understand that, haven't embraced that and experienced that, our hearts should go out to them like Jesus' heart went out to the lost. They're like sheep without a shepherd. Do we have compassion on the lost? Do we have compassion and care? Are we willing to seek to see them saved? What I'm particularly thinking of is that real love includes love for the lost, and some of you might be called to a marriage to someone who is lost. Or quite often you know somebody who is a Christian that's married to somebody who's lost. How are we to function? Well, First Peter 3 gives us some great advice on that. But particularly also, 1 Corinthians 7, Paul says that if any brother has a wife who's an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If a woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, he should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. Now, this is not the holiness of one Christian makes the other person a Christian. It's that that unbeliever is exposed to the gospel in that person's life and in their conversation. And if they were to separate, then that exposure wouldn't be the same. They wouldn't be there to have that sanctifying influence. And so, that's an opportunity, maybe by your conduct, without a word, you can see your spouse one to the Lord. That's real love. And real love has to be supreme over these other desires. Now, as we think about love and as we look at the activity love, Paul clarifies in this list of what love looks like, how it looks in action, just what the manifestation should be. He says, again, in 1 Corinthians 13, 4, love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It's not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It's not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoings, but it rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things. Love believes all things. Love hopes all things. Love endures all things. Love never ends. I don't know about you, but when I get a list in the Bible of different things that I should be doing, I usually can make it a little ways before I think, oh, there it is. That's the one I got to work on. There's my problem. Well, I didn't make it past the first one in this list before I was sunk because I'm not patient in my love. I want it my way right away. Well, that's what an old hamburger commercial used to tell me. I want what I want when I want it, and I don't want to wait. So, a redeemed, transformed, Christ-foundational love 
is one that shows patience because think of it from the source. God is always patient with me. What Micah said today in our assurance of pardon, he is steadfast in his love. He is slow to anger. That's the kind of love I've been loved with. How come I can't show that to one who I'm closest to in my marriage? Look, these are all challenges us for, for us to live by. I, I think time and time again, I, I come across um, in training for biblical counseling in marriage and family, in counseling sessions that I have, in supervision of counselors in training, there are so many things that are testing and trying and working against our marriages. Just this week, I had a counselor that I'm supervising from another state contact me. Hey, I need to talk as soon as you get a chance. The last recording that I listened to of his counseling session, it's like six sessions in, he was so excited about how they were improving and progressing. At the end of the tape, he said, this couple's doing great. I'm like, good, way to go. I'm, I'm so pleased to hear that. This week, the husband cheated on the wife. The wife finds out through Facebook from the mom of the girl he cheated with, and it's a disaster. Everything's blown up. Everything is a mess. What do we do? Well, we talk through some of the legal concerns that he had about who knows what and the age of the person that was involved and then what to do to rebuild this marriage if it can be. Well, if there's genuine repentance and owning of sin and the desire to be cleansed before God of sin and to reconcile the marriage, the only hope for this marriage is going to be real love, not that they can conjure in themselves, not that they can make and, and, and just hope that time will heal all wounds or that they'll be able to forgive and forget. It takes a lot more. It takes the active love of the transformed real love that God shows us in Christ. I use probably have purchased a few hundred of these little pamphlets on what to do when your marriage goes sour by Jay Adams. And he talks about love in terms of its activity through an imaginary conversation with a couple that has had it and they're at their wit's end and there's no hope for their marriage. They think they don't love each other anymore. He says, I'm truly sorry to hear about your difficult times and the sorry state in which you find yourselves at present. I can understand why you've come for help. And when a marriage has gone sour, you'll find that all of your own efforts to sweeten it again fail. Then you do need help. You say that there's no love and there's no feeling left. That's serious. If you don't love each other, then there's one thing to do. Here it comes, they thought. He'll tell us, go ahead and get divorced. He said, you'll have to learn how to love each other. Learn how to love, he retorted. What do you mean, learn how to love? Yeah, how can you learn it? You can't produce feelings, of, feelings out of thin air. I wasn't talking about feelings, the counselor said. I was talking about love. The two are not identical. Even though Hollywood and TV and Playboy might say otherwise, love is not a feeling first. Before all else, it's a determination to do good for another person because God has told you to do so. Love begins, therefore, with a desire to please God. Love toward another is willingness to give him whatever you have that he needs because you know that God wants you to. 
where true love exists, the feelings follow soon enough. That's tough. Now, that's a message for somebody is at, at the ninth inning and the bottom. But it's also a message for those of us who just aren't feeling the love in our marriage like we want to feel. That we kind of feel like things are mediocre in our love for one another. Tim Keller says, in, in any relationship, there'll be frightening spells in which you fe- your feelings of love dry up. But when that happens, you must remember that the essence of marriage is that it's a covenant, a commitment, a promise of future love. So what do you do? You do the acts of love despite your lack of feeling. You may not feel tender, sympathetic, and eager to please, but in your actions, you must be tender, understanding, forgiving, and helpful. And if you do that, as time goes on, you will not only get through the dry spells, but they'll start to become less frequent and deep, and you'll become more constant in your feelings. This is what can happen if you decide to love. Well, that's hypocritical. How could I decide to act a certain way if I really don't feel like doing it? Well, this morning, when I hit the alarm and shut it off and actually got out of my warm, cozy bed to get on with my duties for the day, I acted 100% against my feelings because I did what God wanted me to do. And so in your marriage commitment to love one another in sickness and in health till death do you part, you're called and commanded love with the actions and the feelings will follow. Well, you may not be married to an unbeliever, but you might be married to a sinner. In fact, I'm 100% certain that you are married to a sinner. I'm a sinner married to a sinner. In that case, how are we to live? How do we show mercy? How do we care for sinners who are the worst of sinners? In conclusion, I want you to think of the guy at the start of his wedding ceremony looking down the aisle at his beautiful bride. And let's say that he had eight important sessions of premarital counseling where we covered this very material and he had a biblical understanding of real love and what that actually means. Maybe he would think in his mind and say to himself, I'm a sinner. She's a sinner too. But God has showed me his grace and his mercy at the cross and he has shown her grace and mercy and I get to show her love because I've been loved by Christ, not because of anything she's going to do for me in the future or what she's done for me in the past, but 100% of what because of what Christ has done for me. I'm going to screw up and I'm going to sin against her and I want to be quick to ask her forgiveness. She's going to be sinning against me and I want to be quick to accept her repentance and forgive her. By God's grace, I pray that our love would grow and mature over time. And you know what? That depth of understanding of the love that they have for one another will one day seem just like a shallow puddle compared to the kind of love that God can grow in them over the years and years of growing first closer to their Heavenly Father and His love for them and then in their love for one another. Let's pray. Father, we ask that as we
have considered this subject of love, that you would uh, transform our worldly thinking about love into your biblical thinking about love, and that we would act in ways that honor you in all things, tough relationships, difficult and problematic paths will often plague us and hold us back from living the new redeemed lives that you've called us to live. I pray, Lord, that you would make troubled marriages more stable and secure. I pray that you would make mediocre marriages wonderful. I pray, Lord, for our understanding of real love to grow in such depth that our relationships, yes, with our spouses, but yes, within the church, with our children, and beyond, would be transformed and demonstrate the love that we've been loved with. I pray this for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Our hymn of response is hymn 674, a very appropriate hymn. I need thee every hour. We'll stand and sing verses 1 through 3 as the elders come to prepare the table.